Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 11th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. A shooting in Kentucky leaves four dead. A ship carrying 400 migrants goes adrift in the Mediterranean Sea. Ukraine alters its military plans following recent Pentagon leaks. A Saudi Oman envoy meets with Houthi officials for peace talks. Iran and Saudi Arabia look set to reopen embassies. Expelled Tennessee lawmakers seek reappointments. A building collapse in Marseille kills six. The Biden administration begins appealing last week's abortion pill ruling. A court backs the firing of a teacher who wouldn't use preferred names. And Fox News settles an election defamation lawsuit with a Venezuelan businessman. In our top story, disturbing news coming from Louisville, Kentucky, where a shooter leaves four dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, New York Post, Fox News, Newsweek, NBC, and BBC News. At least four people were killed and nine others critically injured in a mass shooting at Louisville's Old National Bank on Monday morning. Among those shot were two officers, one of whom has undergone surgery. The shooter, 23-year-old Connor Sturgeon, reportedly live-streamed his attack on Instagram before he was fatally shot by police. Four of the slain victims ranged from 40 to 60 years old, all of whom were bank employees. According to Louisville Police Deputy Chief Paul Humphrey, the officers, who arrived on the scene within minutes, absolutely saved people's lives. An eyewitness said he saw a man with a long assault rifle fire multiple shots near the conference room on the first floor, adding, quote, whoever was next to me got shot. A motive has not yet been disclosed. However, the shooter is believed to be a current or former bank employee and may have had mental health issues. Monday's shooting was the 146th mass shooting of 2023 in the U.S., including at least 15 since April 1st. This also comes just two weeks after a violent attack on a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. All right, well, it's with uh, heavy hearts that we bring you these narrative spins. The left spin comes from the Inquirer of Cincinnati. This kind of recurrent gun violence is a uniquely American epidemic. How many innocent victims must die before gun laws are reformed? The U.S. has more guns than any other country, essentially one gun for every citizen, and one of the highest gun-related death rates. This madness needs to stop with better regulation, including limiting who has access and the types of weapons they own. The right narrative is coming from Town Hall. In tragedies like this, the left sadly focuses too much on curtailing the Second Amendment rights of American citizens and also using gun violence to further an agenda driven by extreme identity politics. Each case is situation-specific, and woke politicians and activists would be better served by addressing the stressors impacting specific perpetrators. And sadly, we have a cynical narrative on this story as well, coming from the Los Angeles Times. Another day in the U.S., another mass shooting. And just like all the previous tragic attacks, nothing will change based on the empty rhetoric of both sides. Mass shootings have become a part of America's landscape, and neither the left nor the right has enough political willpower to change that. There is a nerd narrative for this story as well, coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.39 small firearms per capita in the USA by the year 2029. 
Obviously, this is, you know, this is as sad as it gets. One thing I, I did notice, and I have been noticing, and unfortunately, again, the, the many mass shootings we've reported, is since Uvalde, it seems like uh, law enforcement and first responders are being much more proactive in, in response. The response time for this one was like three minutes, which is very, very fast from yeah, the time so, of the call. So, yeah. Yeah. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Our next story, a boat carrying 400 migrants is adrift in the Mediterranean. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Channel News Asia, NPR Online News and Breitbart. A vessel with around 400 migrants and refugees on board is adrift in the Mediterranean between Italy and Malta, as it awaits rescue from the Italian Coast Guard, according to Sea Rescue Support Service Alarm Phone. The boat is about 170 miles southeast of Capo Passero, off the coast of Calabria, and is at risk of capsizing after being stranded for at least 24 hours. Italy's Coast Guard has three rescue operations involving multiple vessels. A total of 1,200 migrants are reportedly currently adrift at sea, with another vessel carrying 800 people detected 120 miles southeast of Syracuse, Sicily. Before these two operations, the Italian Coast Guard said it had already rescued around 2,000 migrants since Friday. At least two migrants died and 20 others are missing after their boats sank between Tunisia and Italy over the weekend. The non-governmental organization Rescue Ship said its rescuers reached the area of the wreck on Saturday and found about 25 people in the water who said they had been there for two hours. Italy has experienced a migration crisis as more than 28,000 migrants have arrived in Italy since the start of the year, almost 400% more than over the same time period in 2022. Giorgio Maloney's new government has focused on stemming migration. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Sea-Watch. Italian and Maltese authorities have left hundreds of people to die at sea, showing a complete disregard for humanitarian values. The delays in maritime search and rescue represent extraordinary negligence. However, Italy and Malta's deliberate political choices prevented stranded migrants from the help they needed to survive. Anti-immigration governments are costing people's lives. And the right narrative comes from The Spectator of Australia. While woke nonprofits point fingers and demonize Italian authorities, Italy competently conducts search and rescue at sea. Italy cannot stop thousands of migrants from embarking on dangerous journeys. While certain organizations and left-wing groups point the finger at Italy, they offer no solutions for addressing the root of the migration crisis. 2,000 years ago, Roman times, the fact that Italy was kind of the the center point of the whole Mediterranean allowed them to kind of project power and, and control basically the world. Now, it makes them kind of a big target for migrants. They're just kind of hanging out there, right? Right. To me, it's just a sinking ship, Scott. I think that uh, there's just someone's going to have to throw out a life raft for these folks. Ginger or Marianne? I like ginger. I mean, let me just be clear. You can't go wrong. I mean, That's you're fi- true. If, you're, if you're adrift with one or both of those gals, you're fine. But you know what? I respect your ginger, and I'm actually with you on ginger. To me, I think you're more of a Mrs. Howell guy. Hey, I mean, those checks won't bounce. Ukraine alters military plans in wake of Pentagon leaks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Global Times, International News by Azerbaijan, and MSN. 
In the wake of classified U.S. documents being leaked and circulated on the Internet in the past several days, Ukraine has modified some of its war plans, a source close to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told CNN on Monday. The documents divulged perceived areas of Ukrainian vulnerability and weakness, including shortages in weaponry and ammunition, as well as scarcity in air defense coverage over certain regions. The leaks also detailed the sizes and locations of troop deployments and their combat readiness in addition to what weapons and training they were due to receive. When asked to comment if Russia was responsible for circulating the documents, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, I cannot comment on this in any way. You and I know that there is in fact a tendency to always blame everything on Russia. It is in general a disease. Some military and intelligence analysts have suggested that if Russia had been first to receive the leaked documents, it would not make much sense to publicize that fact to their enemies as it would force a change of plans and make any hard-won intelligence worthless. Meanwhile, Peskov added that there were no plans for an Easter ceasefire at this stage. Russia and Ukraine, as predominantly Orthodox countries, will mark Easter this coming Sunday on April 16th. So far, there haven't been any initiatives on this matter, but our Holy Week has just begun, Peskov said. Elsewhere, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko met with Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu on Monday. In the meeting, Lukashenko reportedly called on Russia to provide his country with formal security guarantees. All right, thanks for that rundown, Eric. CNN brings us Narrative A. While it's understood that the U.S. is one of the most sophisticated intelligence apparatuses in the world, the leaked documents provide a rare glimpse of how this country spies on its allies and foes alike. The revelations are likely to anger some of its closest partners at a time when cohesion is badly needed. Narrative B comes from U.S. News & World Report. While the leaks may show some accurate information, this bears the hallmarks of an American disinformation operation. This release was created to prompt confusion among Russian ranks ahead of Ukraine's plans to launch a spring counteroffensive. And we have another statistics-based nerd narrative. This time, the Metaculous community predicts there is a 3.5% chance that NATO Article 5 collective defense action will be taken before January 1st, 2024. A Saudi Oman envoy meets with Houthi officials for peace talks in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, FARS News Agency, Democracy Now! and Al Jazeera. Saudi and Omani officials reportedly held talks with the head of the Houthi Supreme Political Council, Mahid al-Mashat, over the weekend in the Yemeni capital of Sana'a. The envoys discussed ending hostilities and lifting a Saudi-led blockade on Yemeni ports. Chief Houthi negotiator Mohammed Abdul Salam said Saturday that they want a stop to the aggression completely, lifting the blockade completely, paying the salaries of all Yemeni employees from oil and gas revenues, as well as the exit of foreign forces from Yemen, compensations, and reconstruction. According to official Saudi media, the potential deal would progress in three phases. The first phase would collectively include a ceasefire, the reopening of all land, air, and sea routes, the merger of the central banks, and prisoner exchanges. Talks of a potential ceasefire came shortly after China, both Iran and Saudi Arabia's biggest trade partner, brokered a deal to reignite diplomatic relations between the two countries. Beijing relies on the region as it covers most of its crude oil needs. The agreement, if successful, reportedly could be announced before April 20th, the start of Islam's Eid holiday, and could help revitalize Yemen's economy as Saudi Arabia has imposed severe restrictions on the flow of goods into Yemen since 2015. A Houthi official also said Saturday that they had received 13 detainees released by Saudi Arabia in exchange for a Saudi detainee freed earlier. 
part of a pledge by the Houthis last month during talks in Switzerland to free 887 detainees. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from The Intercept. Though the extent to which China played a role in this potential ceasefire is still unclear, it does seem that Beijing's diplomatic approach far outweighed the U.S. style of saber-rattling. This is shown by CIA Director William Burns' angry statement on the matter, in which he scolded Saudi Arabia for coming to a peaceful agreement with the Houthis. The U.S. is thirsty for more profits from this unnecessary war, which is why China stepped up to offer another diplomatic ally other than declining American hegemony. Cross that with this pro-establishment narrative from MENA FN. The idea that China miraculously brokered a Saudi-Iran peace deal is delusional, as Beijing has been meddling in Middle Eastern affairs for years to no avail. The PRC has also not proven capable of maintaining a peace deal of this magnitude. Many unforeseen incidents can break this agreement apart, such as Houthi rebels launching attacks on their own or anti-government protests in Iran that stoke renewed anger toward the Saudis. Diplomacy isn't as simple as some are making it out to be, and Beijing will soon learn that as it digs its claws deeper into challenging Middle Eastern issues. In our next story, Iran and Saudi Arabia are set to reopen embassies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al-Arabia, The Times of Israel, DW. Guardian, BBC News, and France 24. The Iranian Foreign Ministry announced Sunday that ministry officials will travel to Saudi Arabia this week to prepare for the reopening of the Iranian diplomatic missions in the Persian Gulf Kingdom. According to Iranian Deputy Foreign Minister Alareza Eniyadi, two separate delegations will visit Saudi Arabia to arrange the reopening of Iran's embassy in Riyadh and its consulate in Jeddah. This came after a Saudi delegation on Saturday arrived in Iran on a similar diplomatic trip as part of a political rapprochement between the majority Shiite Islamic Republic and the mainly Sunni Muslim kingdom. According to Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan Al Saud, the reopening of Saudi diplomatic missions in Iran is aimed at, quote, implementing the tripartite agreement brokered by China between the longtime geopolitical rivals. Last week, the Saudi Foreign Minister and his Iranian counterpart, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, met in China for the first high-level consultations since relations were severed in 2016, pledging to bring security, stability, and prosperity to the region. The Iran-Saudi agreement brokered by China in March calls for the two regional powers to both reopen their diplomatic missions within two months and enforce security and economic cooperation deals inked over 20 years ago. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from foreign policy. The Saudi-Iranian diplomatic overtures are not necessarily bad news for Washington, as greater regional security also serves U.S. interests. Yet Washington should also seize the opportunity to focus on promoting political pluralism and human rights in the region to achieve lasting peace. Moreover, to effectively contain the authoritarian PRC regime's growing regional influence, Washington must defend its interests and liberal values with like-minded allies. Global Times gives us an establishment critical narrative. That Saudi Arabia and Iran are about to reopen their embassies signifies that China's efforts to bring peace to the region are bearing fruit. That the U.S. pretends to welcome any development that benefits peace shows Washington has instigated regional conflicts to profit from chaos. The recent developments in the Middle East are the latest expression of the fact that global South countries are finally fed up with Washington's hypocrisy and the export of its so-called values. And we have another nerd narrative from Attaculus. This one predicts that there's a 55% chance 
that Saudi Arabia will normalize its relations with Israel by 2031 if Iran obtains a nuclear bomb by then. That's a small price to pay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a real tit for tat. Expelled Tennessee lawmakers seek reappointments. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Independent, CBS News, and the Associated Press. Tennessee State Representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, the two Democrats who were expelled from the Tennessee House of Representatives last week, Sunday said in a television appearance that they hope to be reappointed to the body while awaiting the chance to run in special elections. Under Tennessee law, county commissions could temporarily return Jones and Pearson to their seats. Nashville officials were scheduled to vote Monday on Jones' case, while the Shelby County Commission could do the same for Pearson as soon as Wednesday. The special elections for those seats will be held in the months ahead. Last Thursday, Jones and Pearson were voted out of the chamber for participating in a gun reform demonstration involving protesting in the State House after a deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville that saw three children and three adults killed. A third Democrat, Gloria Johnson, avoided expulsion when the House voted for her to remain in office last Thursday. Republican House Speaker Cameron Sexton said through a spokesperson that the body will seat anyone appointed by the commissions as the Constitution requires. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from The Guardian. Republicans can try to usurp democracy all they want, but there are mechanisms like these reappointments and special elections to make sure the will of the voters isn't overruled by the GOP's authoritarian impulses. When Republicans act as they have, They're not just hurting people in specific districts, they're harming the entire state by removing legitimately elected officials and putting a chilling effect on citizens' rights to protest. And The Federalist brings us a Republican narrative. The expulsion of these legislators wasn't a product of racism or an attack on democracy. They were the result of an insurrection that Jones and Pearson must be held accountable for helping incite. Democrats are screaming about the First Amendment, but they must remember how they wanted innocent Republicans removed from office after the January 6, 2021 protests at the U.S. Capitol. Returning these members to the House, rather than holding them accountable for their actions, would be the true disruption of democracy. In our next story, disturbing news coming from France as a Marseille building collapse leaves six dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Guardian, BBC News, France 24, and New York Times. At least six people were killed when an explosion collapsed a residential building in the southern French city of Marseille on Sunday. French authorities opened an investigation to find the cause of the explosion of the four-story apartment building as rescuers continued searching for more people in the rubble. At least five people from a neighboring building sustained minor injuries in the explosion. In addition, two nearby apartment blocks also collapsed later in the day without causing any casualties. Dozens of firefighters battled the blaze, disrupting canine search and rescue dogs from finding survivors. Meanwhile, a fund of 100,000 euros or $110,000 has been provided to help the victims of the explosion. Eight people were killed after two dilapidated buildings in the center of Marseille collapsed in 2018. French authorities said those buildings were poorly maintained unlike the building that collapsed on Sunday. All right, we have some uh, diametrically opposed narratives on this tragedy. Let's start with the establishment critical narrative from Le Monde. Very sadly, France has learned nothing from the 2018 disaster. Housing standards in Marseille have stayed the same as 40,000 residents continue to live in shoddy structures. The latest collapse casts a harsh light on the city's poorly built homes. The pro-establishment narrative coming from Radio Free International. It's too early to jump to conclusions. Potential factors could include faulty wiring, criminal intent, or gas leak. 
the nation is in mourning right now, and the focus must remain on finding survivors and relocating the displaced residents instead of casting blame. Due process will ultimately yield the truth. There must be some way to find a middle ground between, obviously, these lax standards of building here in this area of France. When I lived in California, you couldn't change anything on your house without pulling a permit. It was insane. Everything was shut down, basically. You couldn't do anything. How are things in your neck of the woods? Oh, here in uh, in Central Africa? We still, we still have, <laughs> yeah. we still have thatched roofs. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck changing it. <laughs> The White House and the Department of Justice plan a response to the abortion pill ruling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, CNN, Al Jazeera, The Hill, and Fox News. On Monday, the U.S. Department of Justice initiated a request in a federal appeals court to block last week's ruling from a Texas federal judge that would restrict access to the abortion pill mifepristone. This comes as U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Javier Becerra said Sunday that everything is on the table responding to a Texas federal judge's ruling to suspend the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone. Kazmarek's decision, considered to be the first time a single judge overruled the medical authority of the FDA, gives the Biden administration seven days to appeal before the temporary ban goes into effect. The Texas plaintiffs, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, alleged the FDA was wrong to approve the drug more than 20 years ago. Secretary Becerra also touted the safety of the drug, something Judge Kazmarek questioned in his ruling. However, he did not detail any tangible preparations the administration would take to secure access to abortion should the drug no longer be available. Though Kazmarek's ruling gave the government a week to appeal the decision, the Biden administration is asking to extend that pause to enable the government to seek relief in the Supreme Court if necessary. The FDA, which places special restrictions on mifepristone under a safety program to minimize the risk of drugs that could be dangerous, began allowing certified retail pharmacies to dispense the abortion pill in January. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin comes from Slate. It is a democratic narrative. This is one of the most lawless acts by a federal judge in U.S. history. This decision not only breaches the scope of the judiciary, but also has the potential to impose fetal personhood laws nationwide effectively banning abortions even in states that uphold a women's right to reproductive autonomy. This is unconstitutional, immoral, and must be overturned. And we have a Republican narrative from the Washington Examiner. Critics of this decision are purposefully ignoring the procedural arguments made in Judge Kaczmarek's ruling. He isn't banning the abortion pill for political reasons, but rather due to the FDA's failure 20 years ago to test the drug on girls under 18 or evaluate the psychological or long-term medical consequences of the pill. The FDA's approval was politically motivated, not Judge Kaczmarek's legal decision. Metaculous Prediction Community giving us a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before 2030. In our next story, a court backs a teacher firing for a preferred name refusal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Independent, ABC News, and Business Insider. A U.S. appeals court on Friday ruled that a high school in Indiana did not break the law when they forced music teacher John Klug to resign over his refusal to use transgender students' preferred names. Klug claimed he was acting in line with his religious beliefs. According to the Chicago-based 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, Klug's rights to express his religious convictions were superseded by the potentially disruptive impact of his conduct on learning. 
Although the teacher was originally allowed to address pupils by their last names, trans students claimed this made them feel uncomfortable and ostracized. The court said that Klug's action had led to students feeling disrespected, targeted, and dehumanized. First hired in 2014, Klug led music and orchestra lessons. In 2017, district officials began requiring teachers to use students' names and pronouns as listed in their school's database. But Klug notified the principal of his religious objection to using those of transgender students. Klug's objections were met with criticism and eventually prompted his resignation after the school informed him that his employment was going to be terminated over the matter. Klug subsequently sued the school board for violation of his First Amendment rights. He reportedly sought damages and to resume his employment. Though legislation does recognize employers' responsibility to accommodate workers' religious rights, the religious beliefs of teachers should only be protected if they do not cause undue hardship to the school's conduct, according to federal law. It's no surprise we have a bunch of narratives on this story, Eric. Let's start with the right narrative from the New York Post. The school district clearly violated Klug's religious rights, despite Klug himself going out of his way to accommodate his students' divergent beliefs and treat them all with respect. This kind of unlawful dismissal is exactly what Title VII is designed to prevent. Klug deserves damages for the undermining of his First Amendment rights. The New Statesman gives us a left narrative. Klug's legal tirade is simply false martyrdom. Legislation protecting minority rights is important. Hence, why the school district intervened to ensure that transgender students and their education were protected. Rather than feigning to be martyrs, teachers like Klug should revise their theology and recognize that Christianity is about understanding rather than conflict. And we have a third narrative, Narrative C from The Federalist. Church and state issues have come to the center of the modern culture wars, partly because protecting the rights of minorities without unjustly curtailing religious liberties is such a delicate balance to strike. The U.S. has veered far from the Founding Fathers' initial conception of religious freedom. In this time of partisanship, revisiting such a modest approach to religious liberty and encouraging both religious and non-religious individuals and groups to rub shoulders in the search for equality could be beneficial. This story has also produced a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 50% chance that at least 20.4% of the global population will identify as religiously unaffiliated in 2050. Our final story, Fox News settles its election defamation lawsuit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Reuters, Bloomberg, The Hill, The Guardian, and LawAndCrime.com. Fox News has announced that a settlement has been reached with Venezuelan businessman Mahed Khalil, ending a defamation case in which Khalil claimed he was falsely accused by host Lou Dobbs of helping rig the 2020 U.S. presidential election against Donald Trump. Khalil had called the accusation, which aired in December of 2020, a lie totally devoid of reality. Fox allegedly portrayed Khalil as one of four people who worked with two electronic voting companies, Dominion and Smartmatic to ensure that Joe Biden won the election. Financial terms of the settlement were not specified within the letter filed to U.S. District Court Judge Louis Lee Stanton in New York's Southern District. A Fox News spokesperson told The Hill that the matter had been resolved amicably by both sides. The lawsuit was directed at Lou Dobbs, who called Khalil the COO of the election project, on air and on Twitter, as well as attorney Sidney Powell. In September, Judge Stanton ruled it was untrue and that the claims harmed Khalil's reputation. Dobbs had urged his followers to get familiar with Khalil and three others in relation to what he called a cyber Pearl Harbor concerning the 2020 election result. 
He was taken off the air in February of 2021. Multiple investigations have found no evidence of wrongdoing during the election. This comes as jury selection is set to begin Thursday for a lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems Corporation against Fox News for $1.6 billion. It's also claiming defamation as part of the continued controversy surrounding the 2020 election coverage. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a left narrative, and it's coming from the brown and white. The series of defamation suits against Fox raises the issue of how far the media can bend the truth before they are held accountable. Fox knew that many of its claims were untrue and yet continued to push its on-air narratives to prevent viewers from leaving the network for the likes of Newsmax or One America. No matter the verdict of these cases, the limits of lying in the news have now been firmly established. And there's a right narrative from The Federalist. While right-wing outlets get all the attention, one need look no further than MSNBC to see how left-wing establishment media are protected from defamation cases like these as the left-wing network is still airing segments accusing Trump of being a Russian operative. Years after the Russia hoax was debunked, these news outlets still allow accusations like these to reach millions of viewers with no fear of retribution. These are clear double standards at play. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 11th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Stein inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.